and welcome to AHB's Off The Record. My name is Enna. And my name is Jo. And we are your hosts. Just wanted to start by saying a massive thank you to everybody who listened to our first podcast and expressed interest in hearing more and wanting to be part of it. So yeah, that's why we've got a second episode. Exactly. Um, So when we first started our Facebook page, the first appreciation post we did was about occupational therapists. So we thought, who would be better to start our podcast interviews than with an occupational therapist and also someone that we both know? So today, our first guest is Lindsay. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Lindsay. Um, Do you mind just letting people know a bit about you? Yep. Hi, Um, I'm Lindsay Sanders. I'm a clinical lead occupational therapist in the emergency department. Perfect. And as we did last time, this is also being recorded remotely. We are going to start by asking Lindsay some questions, but we thought it'd probably be best for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what an occupational therapist is to try and do a bit of a summary of their job role. Um, Lindsay can correct me if I've done or said anything wrong, but (laughs) an occupational therapist job role is to help people of all ages overcome the effects of disability caused by illness, aging or accidents so that they can carry out everyday tasks or occupations. OTs work in many settings, including community, acute and mental health services, helping patients to get home or remain safely at home and prevent hospital admissions by providing equipment, cognitive rehabilitation and access to local local resources. Does that sound about right, Lindsay? You've done a great job there, Anna. Perfect. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Guess we better crack on with the questions. Yeah, let's get started. So the first thing we really like to know, Lindsay, is how did you get into occupational therapy? Um, So I initially did a degree in psychology. Um, From about sort of the age of 14, I did child development, uh, GCSE at school. And I was really interested in the sort of educational psychology side of things. So I was always really fixed that psychology was what I was going to do. And I didn't really explore any other careers, to be honest. Mm. Um, So I ended up doing my, I finished my GCSEs and then I did psychology A-level and then went straight on to do my degree in psychology. And up until that point, I had never heard of occupational therapy, which to be (laughs) honest, so many people have never really heard of the career. Um, And then I ended up being quite interested in health psychology um, towards the end of my degree. And I had a place on a health psychology master's course. And then maybe about a month before it was due to start, the funding was pulled. And so I found myself sort of have this year out um, from education. And suddenly I was thinking, oh, you know, do I really want to try and get um, a doctorate in psychology and spend all these years more studying and getting into more debt? And so I sort of just had this year of really starting weirdly at the age of, what, is it 21 when you finish uni? Um, yeah. yeah. Just thinking, well, actually, what, what am I going to do? And is this what I really want to do? Um, and then one evening, my mum's friend came over Um, And we got chatting and she happened to be an occupational therapy assistant. Mm. And 
I was thinking, oh, actually, that's sort of ticking a lot of the boxes of the things that I'm interested in. And I always had an interest in human behaviour. And I know it sounds really cheesy, but I always wanted to do a job that made a difference. Um, yeah, that's not cheesy at all. <laughs> it's that typical thing that people say. Um, I knew that I wouldn't be able to work in an office. And I knew that I wanted to work with people. Um, so she said to me, look, you could probably come and spend the day with me in my hospital. So she was actually working on an orthopedic ward. And that's what I did. So I went and spent the day with her just to learn a bit more about OTs and what they do. Um, and then I spent some time researching it, the career. And I found that you could do a two year um, master's course because I already had my degree in psychology. And so I applied and the rest is history, really. Oh, that's amazing. I think that's quite similar to both of us in terms of when we did our first, when we were recording the first one, where both of us didn't see ourselves going into the profession that we ended up going into. We both wanted to do something else initially and then found our way there. So it's quite it's quite nice to know that you can go from doing other things and then still get into get into these allied health professional roles without having to not necessarily like struggle too much, but you can f- figure it out on your own. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something quite beneficial about having a bit more life experience when you go into these careers as well. Um, Certainly, hilariously, I was terrified of hospitals, had a phobia of vomit, a phobia of needles, (laughs) blood, all of that kind of thing, which is quite funny that I now work in the emergency department. Um, but I don't I can't imagine myself at 21 doing this job so in a way I think it was right for me to come to the career a bit you know a bit older and have a bit more life experience behind me no definitely and you've just touched on it a little bit and that's our next question but what is your current job role yep so I am the clinical lead occupational therapist um for a team of 10 therapists which makes is made up of physios and OTs um in the emergency department but also within acute medicine so that includes all of ED but also our adult assessment unit which is we aim to be a 24-hour unit um and also our medical assessment unit which we aim to be a 72-hour unit and in terms of like you said that your team is split between like your physio and OT like can you describe a little bit more about what OTs do specifically in in ED? Yeah um so I always dread this question and last night when, <laughs> when I was prepping for this last night I really had a bit of a existential crisis moment where I thought how have I how am I I'm 10 years this year into my career and I thought how am I still struggling um, to explain what an occupational therapist does and um, so I'm glad that you introduced the, the role at the beginning Anna. <laughs> um, so within within ED really we do we do everything that an, an acute OT would do so we still go and see the patients we get the collateral history we do a functional assessment we can do things like providing equipment liaising with community teams making the onward referrals um, but the main thing really that we do as therapists within the ED is we sort of tend to use the phrase admission avoidance, but I also I'm, tr- I'm trying actually to move away from that phrase now because I think that also doesn't really explain our role very well. But in very simple terms, we will see patients who for have presented to the ED 
Um, but for one reason or another, the, the MDT may feel concerned about them going back home. And our role really, I like to think that we are the gatekeepers um, of the hospital. And our role is to go and see those people and try our best to help get them back home. Um, mm -hmm. If there really is no reason and they don't need to stay in hospital for any sort of acute medical intervention, then our role is to, to try and, and get them home. Um, because we know that patients who are admitted unnecessarily onto the wards have a much higher risk of deconditioning, getting delirium, falls, pressure ulcers, and really at the worst case scenario, um, not ending up getting home and, and sometimes even ending up going into a, a placement, for example. Um, and I think that's what a major thing, isn't it, though, Lindsay, in terms of, I think, especially in that respect when it comes to ED, that people sometimes feel that being in hospital is the safer place mm. and it's actually just kind of kind of changing that mindset a bit which OTs and physios in A&E have a massive part of just being that actually the safest place for you is actually to be to be at home and we can try and create um, a way that makes it as safe as possible and and you'll definitely like you'll end up recovering a bit better from home too. Absolutely and I think really the main sort of skills and the things that you learn as as an OT or a physio within ED is um, you really the speed of which that you work um, and really refining and developing your clinical reasoning skills because we don't have much time obviously we're always on the clock if you're seeing patients at the front of ED and in the adult treatment area um, and you've got your four hour target that you're aiming to work towards. So you need to be able to do a very quick assessment and really make a decision based on that about whether, you know, what that person might need and, and how to get them home. Um, and then the other real big skill that we have is managing risk. And mm. we are very pro-risk. Um, and I think we're really skilled at being able to do those assessments and put things in place that we can to minimise those risks where possible. But also as OTs really understanding cognition being able to do those assessments and we heavily get involved in capacity assessments for example where the discharge may be sort of high what we would consider high risk um, we've got really good understanding as well of the discharge pathways and really good relationships with teams like the rapid response team so if there are patients that are at a bit more high risk we really liaise and link in with those teams again just to try and safety net those patients a little bit more. I was just going to say that that was going to link really well into um, the next thing we were going to talk about um, just in terms of um, obviously over the last few months um, as healthcare professionals all our lives were kind of turned upside down by the coronavirus pandemic um, and definitely for, for me one of the first things that we were doing was trying to get as many people out of hospital as possible and sort of thinking about those risks associated with getting people home who you might um, otherwise have kept in for a bit longer to try and protect them. Um, Edda and I spoke in the last podcast about how we were both redeployed and, and how our roles completely changed but it'd be really interesting to know your COVID story and, and what went on with you and your your job, how it changed throughout the, current, throughout the main bit of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean it's been such an um, it's hard to find the words really isn't it to describe mm. what it's been because in a way it's been it has been 
interesting I feel a bit uncomfortable using that word but I've learned so much um over the last few months both clinically but also from a leadership point of view um and I guess so really the, the first thing that we started to notice was that our role in ED actually really reduced because everybody that was coming in really was quite poorly um, and so normally where we are so set up and driven to get people out of the hospital as quickly as possible and to get them home um, we were just finding that that just wasn't possible um, initially we started to have a lot of conversations around sort of end of life care and whether these patients really needed to be stayed really needed to stay in hospital or whether we could actually support them you know, to have, be having those advanced care decisions um, and whether we could support them to be at home. But then we realised that that just really wasn't um, really the, that that wasn't going to work for these patients and they needed a lot of medical care. So as that sort of progressed, we changed a lot of changes were also happening in terms of the way that people were working on the wards. So we actually changed to work as teams across the floors in our hospital rather than individual teams like the orthopaedic team, neuro team, etc. Um, so we just worked together as, as floors and the medical assessment unit, which fits under my team, is actually on the eighth floor. Um, and so I actually ended up becoming the lead for that floor. And what I found in terms of the way that my role changed was it became I have a lot of non-clinical work, usually um, being the clin clinical lead for the team. But actually, I just became completely clinical, um, which I actually really enjoyed. Um, mm. And one of the big things that we needed to do specifically as OTs was we really needed to upskill our respiratory skills. Um, and the physios obviously were very busy and they weren't able to see every single patient. So we needed to support them to really see the patients that they only they could do from a physio point of view. Um, so we had a lot of teaching. We did initially a lot of joint working so that we could feel confident to wean patients off oxygen if, if that's what we needed to do. But also the other end of things was when we were doing function assessments, um, these patients were desaturating really, really quickly. So we had to be confident with putting non-rebreathe masks on patients, for example, which is just something, not something that as an OT you really would be used to doing. And then just giving people lots of advice and education around breathing techniques, particularly people who are breathless. And um, so mm -hmm. I learned a lot about positioning and just, um, you know, just different techniques that we could be giving them. Um, so they were sort of the main things really but then the other side of my job as the floor lead was still to very much be there as the clinical lead and to really support my team there was a lot of questions um, continuously throughout every day and obviously the, the advice and, and things were just changing all the time so a lots of lots of the time people would come to me and I didn't have the answers um, but I would do my best to try and get some information to people. Um, and really just, I was very aware of just sort of checking in with people that, you know, particularly in terms of their well-being, because we were dealing with quite challenging, difficult situations. Um, the other thing as well that we noticed quite quickly on was that we had to change the way that we work. So 
we usually you know follow something called the OT process which I'm sure is similar in physio but sort of getting a lot of the collateral history initially then going and doing a function assessment and, and following that that process but actually again because the patients were quite unwell we realized that getting all the collateral history was giving some relatives sort of a bit of false sense of hope really so we learned that we had to sort of get the bare minimum in terms of how does someone normally transfer or mobilize but not ask all the other questions Mm. um and then as and when if patients did improve um and we were getting close to being able to send them home then we would go back and fill in all the gaps of the information that we didn't have um then the other sort of more general thing was because as i said there was less work for us to do downstairs in ED. Some of the team were sent to ICU. So some of our physios went and worked in ICU permanently. Um, And there were other floors, like the respiratory wards, which needed a bit more therapy intervention. So some of our OTs went and worked specifically on there as well. And I guess it was a big change for everybody in terms of just having to adapt that much. And you were saying about being the clinical lead and having to be not necessarily knowing what was going on but supporting everybody like in terms of like your own reflections on that time like are there anything that particularly like stood out for you Mm. so I'm I mean as an OT I am quite good at my occupational balance um and I always (laughs) tried like when I do leave work I I always try to switch off and you know do fun things um but I really, really noticed how important that was throughout sort of the height of the pandemic. And I found myself initially coming home and spending hours on Twitter, sort of learning what were other therapists doing, what, you know, how were these patients presenting? Um, just it was full of amazing information. But by the time I'd spent hours on Twitter, then watched sort of the the news briefing and all of that sort of stuff and speaking to friends and family that actually my time had just gone and that it was time to go to bed and then go back into work so I very quickly realized that I I needed to have quite strict boundaries um so I actually stopped going on Twitter and had I just well, I had a huge break and I've actually it's only been sort of the last couple of weeks that I've gone back onto Twitter um and really I think it it was about remembering that I needed to look after myself um, because mm. if you don't, you know, if I wasn't looking after myself, then I wasn't going to be as refreshed sort of and there and present for my team um, because it's really easy when you get into sort of the more leadership roles to always be thinking about everybody else and not looking after yourself. And also I've found sort of being in this role that, people tend to check in less with you as well and ask how how you actually are um yeah, and ask about that how you yeah. find because as, as a team lead you're you're the one who people come to with their problems and when they're struggling or they're feeling emotional so it must be quite tricky to to be taking on everyone else's concerns or worries and then also trying to deal with your, your own on the side with without necessarily someone coming in and finding out how you are yeah Absolutely. And I think it's no one's fault, but I think there's sometimes a a bit of a lack of awareness in terms of what else you may have dealt with in your day. So it might be that I've just had two people come to me, you know, really struggling. And then the third person walks through the door and goes, oh, my goodness, Lindsay. And then they start talking to me. But, you know, they don't know that I've just had all those other interactions before. 
and sort of by the end of the day you can feel yourself feeling a little bit depleted really and you always want to be there and be present and be actively listening you know when people do come and and speak to you Um, and also you get very guilty of trying to find the solutions as well Um, and because you want to have the answers for people and actually I didn't have the answers but it was okay to tell people that um, and to reassure them and and do my best really when I could find the information just to make sure that I was doing my best at disseminating and communicating that to the team. Yeah we were gonna um, hope you don't mind us mentioning as well we're both very aware that you have a a very special canine friend (laughs) and we're wondering uh, how how he's been uh, supporting you through all of this. Yeah, so we actually, I was going to do a, a little warning at the beginning of this podcast, just in case, because he is in the room with me, and he is a dachshund, so he likes to bark, so I apologise now <laughs> if he does bark, um, but hopefully when we were we were getting all of the the technology side of things working before we actually started recording this, and he barked quite a lot then, so hopefully he's got his barks out the way. Um <laughs> But he has been a huge, huge help. He has been throughout many times in my life. Um, But I actually live on my own as well. So just that was a real challenge as well, to come home and not have anybody to talk to. And Mm -hmm. actually, I found that my family and friends that don't work in healthcare didn't really always want to talk about it. And I found that quite hard. Um, You sometimes need a vent, don't you? You do, yeah. And you just, yeah, you do really. Um, So yeah, even though Bruno can't talk back, he he heard me venting to him. And I think, you know, the other thing is I had to get out. And there was always this fear in the back of my mind of, you know, what if we aren't allowed to go outside at all, like we saw in some of the other countries. But I always knew, well, I've got a dog, so no one can stop me from going out yeah I think that was the other thing that I found myself just wanting to be in nature and just wanting so desperately to be outside and I don't have a garden either um and I think just being you know being in the PPE and just being in that environment I just really really needed to be outside I don't know if yeah. you both found that too no definitely I think it's it's def- it's it's warm it's hot it's sweaty and it can be a tad claustrophobic and mm. I think we said it in our podcast as well just you're you're wearing this it's, it's not normal for you to be wearing all of that equipment and being that kind of um in that enclosed space almost for that amount of time so when you do get the chance to just be outside and, and as you said be around nature getting some fresh air then it's like you really need to give yourself that time yeah I think it's really helped with um I think loads more people generally are going outside going walking doing some outdoor exercise of any kind I think it's it's massively been a a good way of getting more people exercising and and just being a bit more active as well um people who might have just been busy doing stuff inside before definitely and I was actually training for the marathon Um, oh yeah I was gonna ask yeah I was training for London Marathon so I was you know well I mean luckily I was the fittest I've ever been but I initially tried to carry on with my training but I realized that I just needed to be kind to myself um, and not really put any pressure on myself and 
I mean, one of the other things in terms of coping was, as I know you mentioned in your podcast before, but was all the free food. Um, <laughs> I have definitely gone up a few dress sizes during this. <laughs> um, but it was so, it was just so nice, wasn't it? To, to all the treats that were arriving and sugar, it sugar does keep, keeps me happy. I got into a habit when I was doing night shifts. I was having a cream egg at three in the morning. Oh, <laughs> against anything I would normally have done, but <laughs> to get you through. Exactly. I think I very much had the attitude of if I want to do it, I'm going to just do it. Why not? Why not? <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the next section. Um, and this is our kind of running section that we're going to do in all of the interviews, um, which is our three fives. Um, so, Enna, do you want to start off with the first? Yeah, so Lindsay, our first question, when you qualified, where did you see yourself in five years time? So sorry to disappoint you girls, but honestly, when I when you first sent me the prompts for these questions, I just thought, I don't really know. I don't really think I had like a grand scheme. I definitely <laughs> don't have like the five or 10 year plan. But I think probably, I think what really attracted me to AT was the variety. So I think I really didn't want to sort of pigeonhole myself straight away into um, a specific area. But I probably would have hoped that within five years that I would be on a BAM6 rotation. And you're working in a &E now, and we've talked about it, but if there was any other area that you could work in, where, where would it be? Yeah. So again, I was like, oh, like, I think my head is just so focused now on A&E. Um, but I think for me, I would probably sidestep now. Um, I feel really bad for saying that and not not sticking to being an AT. But I think probably, um, I don't know if you've heard of ESIS, which is the Emergency Care Intensive Support Team. Um, but they come in and they try to improve the care given in EDs and improve sort of systems and processes. And I've done a lot of work with them within our department. Um, so perhaps it wouldn't be within OT now um, and maybe working for someone like ESIS and sort of looking more generally at the way that ED departments work. I'm really interested in discharge and flow as well. Um, so perhaps something in that or maybe in quality improvement. Okay. Yeah, and I think I think that's actually quite good because I know you were saying, oh, um, in terms of side, like side stepping yeah. um, <laughs> and not actually just sticking with AT, but it's, I think that's another quality of being an allied health professional is that flexibility and that variety that actually our roles are really transferable into many different areas so actually if we wanted to do like more like managerial less clinical roles or if we wanted to do exactly what you were just saying that like we can do because our the way that we work kind of lends ourselves to be able to do things like that I feel like we're discovering so much um, by running this page as well um, by mm. all the different professionals we're hearing from who are doing really cool things um, and you know AHP professions that we thought we knew roughly the sorts of things that they might go into and then we hear actually there's a there's a speech and language therapist working in in prisons or there are OTs running insomnia services and it's just so there are so many different alleys that we can go down it's so good. Definitely and I think more and more as I guess we raise our profile and people understand our roles and what skills we have um we will see that and I think as well when when we're looking for jobs I think 
we need to not always be sort of looking for an OT job or a physio job, but looking maybe at in certain areas that you're interested in and then thinking, well, actually, does that, you know, do I have the skills to do that? And I think we will see that more and more. And I think that would be a really good thing for our profession. So, you know, they're seeing OTs working in safeguarding, for example, or having th- um, therapists working as ward managers. You know, we, I think we need to challenge the sort of traditional roles and, and really take perhaps our, you know, we are very proud of our, each of our individual professions and we need to promote them, but also maybe remove that a little bit and think, well, what actually are the skills that I have? Because as AHPs, as you just said, we've got a lot that we can bring to the table. That's so true. I think all the skills that we we get through union just through general um, working are so transferable. I don't know, like our communication, working with so many different people, working in so many different teams, having to be so flexible. Yeah, definitely. And I think what's been really interesting for me is as I've progressed in my career, sort of seeing how AHPs as well can become sort of part of the exec team for example or become chief executives of hospitals which is amazing um and I think we need we need more of that we need more AHPs in these more senior um, leadership roles moving on to the next of our three of our fives um we would love to know five things that you didn't know about occupational therapy before you started studying it yeah so I think the first thing is I probably didn't quite realize just how much of bodily fluids um <laughs> that I would be dealing with um I don't know what I thought sometimes I think what did I actually think I would be doing as an OT but I think the one of the, the second point really is that I don't think I really understood what the role of the OT was within the acute setting. Um, you know, just how much we're involved in terms of managing discharge. Um, and like I said, really, I think when I first went into the career, I very much was focused on rehab and I always thought about rehab. Um, but less, we do, you know, hardly any of that now within the acute setting, unless maybe you're in neuro or, or in orthopaedics. Um, the other really big thing that I just didn't know about is, is really how the NHS works. Um, Mm. and I'm still getting my head around that now. Um, (laughs) and also sort of how slow it can be to make changes, um, within the NHS and what, you know, all those processes are. I think, you know, when you're newly qualified, you're just, you're a bit naive to it all really. And you're so sort of, you're so, um, ambitious and sort of keen but without really realizing how much work and how much you need to think and what all the governance issues are and all of those things that you need to think about before you even do sometimes something very simple mm. which can is a bit of a downfall I think of of the NHS though in that you know there's so much that we do there's so much we have to think about before we can make these changes mm. um the other thing is really having that understanding of how huge a huge part of the role is working with other people so I think I very much just thought about my patients and what I would be doing with my patients but again within the acute setting there's such a huge variety of people that you work with even just within the therapy services but also 
um, the wider MDT and it's such a crucial important part of your job to be able to work well in a team and you um, said it before and you mentioned about the whole like MDT um if you, do you mind just saying a few, a few of the different types of professionals that you you get to work with yeah so um the main sort of people are the doctors nurses but then within therapy services we I work obviously with physios with speech and language therapists dietitians sometimes with podiatrists lots of specialist nurses the discharge team um since I've been in this role I have had more contact with the exec team um which has been great and even sort of interactions with the chief exec um in our hospital the healthcare assistants less so sort of I'm just thinking about sort of maybe the radiographers that kind of thing um that side of thing less so um paramedics as well which is great um in my role it's, there's definitely going to be someone that I've forgotten is there anyone you can think of I don't think you can cover all of no, the no, but I do think that's that kind of covers the especially in the acute setting in terms of yeah. within A&E the, the people that you tend to work with and I think as well just the having like worked having worked in A&E as I said before in terms of the correspondence that you have with consultants and doctors um, but also that they they take what you're saying and they they really value your opinion on patient decisions and I think sometimes when you start you you forget that actually my opinion does matter like it is a big thing sorry if you can hear that <laughs> rustling in the background Bruno decided <laughs> to play get one of his toys out and he's playing <laughs> it around the front room um yeah absolutely that's one of the things that I really really love about working in ED um we can be used as part of the diagnostic process so the doctors will ask us to sort of do our functional assessment and they will then make the decision based on that um, as to whether they might CT, for example. Um, and there's been countless times where, as therapists, we've actually found um, lots of different fractures, for example. We've found brain mets. We found lots of things because it's not until you see people in function that you, you know, really identify deficits um which is why our roles is is so valuable um i think oh the and the last sort of because that was four things so the last thing that i had here in terms of things that i didn't know about my job was how much i would learn about leadership um yeah. again i think i just very much thought that my job would just would just fully be clinical and i'd always be with patients but I have learned huge, you know, masses um, around leadership, which I really enjoy. And our next set of five questions are five things that you enjoy about your job. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think the main thing has to be working, even though I've said about that, I have less time working with patients, but that ultimately is the biggest thing that I enjoy the most um, and I think now when I do get those opportunities I enjoy them even more um, because it really reminds me of why I do the job that I do um, mm. and I just absolutely love the connections that you form with patients and some of the stories are just brilliant um, mm. 
and just yeah I, I absolutely love that side of my job and I think in A&E as well you're never like there's going to be so many people coming in you're going to never know who's going to walk through the door what their story is going to be absolutely no day as any will know having worked in in our team no day is ever the same um, yeah yeah and I think we meet people at their most vulnerable and actually that is a real privilege um and you you don't get many jobs where you can do that um the other thing I really love about my job is when everything comes together um <laughs> that doesn't always happen but when you have been working on a really tricky discharge in ED and it all just comes together nicely and you've used all your problem solving skills um it's just such a nice feeling and when you see the patient going um it's just really really satisfying and you know most of the time that's what you're doing in ED you get that with if you've had a good day you'll get that with all of your patients um and again as I said right at the beginning when that happens you you definitely know that you've made a difference and I don't again like I just don't know how many jobs give you that that feeling really it's it's hard to describe um Mm. but it's it's a great feeling I absolutely love working in a big team. I know that both of you spoke about that last time um, in your podcast. And I just love the buzz of the department. And it kind of is, especially for me, because I've been in at my work for 10 years now. So it really does feel like a work family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, that social side of things is great. And then learning is something that, is brilliant about our job you never ever stop learning there's always something especially again within ed there's so many medical conditions and there's just always something to learn um you will never ever get bored in our careers um and yeah and then the last thing the fifth thing really would be again sort of going back onto the leadership side of things so i just love getting to know my team getting to know sort of their strengths and their areas that they need to develop but also what I really like is how seeing how people sort of develop in their confidence um and sometimes I find when they first come into the team they're quite frightened about making those difficult decisions and sort of they sort of focus really on the risks and why people can't go home but then after spending time with us and really sort of trying to help them understand the home first mindset and positive risk taking it's just really brilliant when people then sort of come to the end of their rotation and you see how much they've grown and how much they've changed as a therapist and I know that when they then go to work on the wards their practice will have really changed and the way that they view things will have really changed. Must be so nice to see people developing across that rotation. How did you find um, your sort of personal transition going you know to leadership through band six band seven and into band eight how did you find that I think at every sort of stage it was really scary and a huge learning curve particularly really from band six to band seven but also then from band seven to eight was huge um but I've been really lucky in that I've always had like brilliant support, really brilliant role models who I've had as supervisors throughout my career and people that I really sort of look up to. And I think as a leader, as long as you feel supported um, and you know that 
if you you know no question is a silly question and you know that there are people there if you need to go and ask and I think the other big difference is as a band eight that I found there's been a lot more peer support um because it is scary you know you get quite used to thinking well I'll, you try to deal with something but if you're not sure there's always someone above that you can go and ask but when you get to the clinical lead you could, it's like oh my goodness there's I don't know who to go to now and there's no one above <laughs> me and I have to make this decision and that's a bit scary but then you realize that there's a whole group of clinical leads you know some of whom have got loads and loads of experience and are a great bunch and you can go and and get some support from them. I think that can also be the say the stage at in in any of the banding, as in there's always going to be people at each band that have been that band longer than you. So you, you, there's always people that you can talk to, or like you'd be able to bounce off ideas if maybe you feel a bit scared, maybe to go to management, or you're a bit concerned about going to um like your your band seven or, or or your band eight or you you think as you said you think it might be a silly question but you've got your peers you've got people to ask around you to be able to just bounce ideas off which I think is a really nice aspect of our job that kind of camaraderie that we all have definitely and I think as well like it's okay to say that you don't know even as a clinical lead there will be other therapists that have more knowledge than I do and I'm very aware that my specialist area is ED and I, for example, perhaps don't know everything about seating because I rarely, well, I don't ever give out seating in ED. So if (laughs) those kind of questions come up, because I also have perhaps other OTs in different areas who might call me for support, so it might not just always be the therapist in ED. Um, I know that the neurophysios and the neuro-ATs, for example, will really understand that setting, um, you know, about seating, sorry. So there's, like you said, there's always someone that you can ask help from if you need it. Moving on to our last question then. Um, so what we really want to do with, with these podcasts and also with our page is um, try and raise a profile of, of AHPs, as you know, and also try to encourage um, more people to, to go into our professions. So we would love to know what you would tell um, students or people thinking of becoming an occupational therapist. Any top tips you might have for them or any insights? Yeah, that is a a good question. There's so much that I would want to tell someone. So I've tried to sort of just think of the main things, really. But I think the main thing really would be to just try and take some time to really get to know the profession. Because as I've just said, there were so many things that I didn't know about before study and I think reading about professions on the internet is great and there's a whole wealth of advice but actually the reality and the actual job when you're in it can sometimes look quite different so I think if you can try and take some time and do lots of work experience and maybe try different areas because that's one of the things that I was so attracted to was the variety in AT but there are so many different areas that you can work in Um, and I think trying to sort of get a balanced view of what are what are the amazing things about the job as we've discussed today on the podcast but also what are some of the challenges because um it can be tough at times and I think it's good for people to sort of get a balanced view really of of the career um I think the other thing is to try and go when you do first qualify try not to go in thinking 
that, for example, I just want to be a neuro OT because I do, I know that both of you as well spoke about this before, but I do hear that a lot. And it's really interesting when I'm, I, I'm planning the band five rotations that everybody wants to do neuro, for example. And actually, um, I think there's, it, that can distract from all the learning and all the opportunities that you can have in other rotations. Um, and perhaps in another rotation, it might not be neuro, but you can learn, you will still be exposed to that. And there's still lots of skills that you can learn, which will be similar in that setting. Um, and then really, I just think I would say that you will make a difference to so many people's lives. Sorry, you will lose count of how many people's lives that you've made an impact to. Um, and the final thing is really that you will be asked many, many times, what is an occupational therapist? What, <laughs> what do you do? And like me, even maybe 10 years down the line, you still might find yourself struggling um, to answer that question. Oh, that's good. That's, that's a nice summary. I like that. That was good. And thank you so much for, for joining us, Lindsay, and sharing your sharing your thoughts with us. And we hope that it's been a nice reflection on the on the processes that you've had to go through in your career. And um yeah, we hope that anyone who's listening to us can also take some some learning points from this as well. Um and yeah, we'll be hopefully back with another podcast really soon just wanted to say a quick thank you to bruno as well for joining us uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been a great addition give him a little shout out no thank you both so much um it has been really interesting just sitting and reflecting time goes by so quickly i can't believe i've been doing this job for 10 years um and i can't still can't quite believe that i'm doing the clinical lead role either um but it's been it's been a really nice it's, it's just a whirlwind isn't it so it's really nice to just take some time to sit down and think about the things that you do really love about your job and to go right back to those early days when you were thinking about your careers and to think about well actually why am, am I still doing this career you know for those reasons for why I wanted to go into it um mm. and I can definitely say that I am and I think sometimes I I I miss that patient contact but actually I am by doing this role I'm still having a direct impact on you know what happens to patients but just in a slightly different way that brings us to the end of our second podcast all we have left to say now is thank you so much for listening if you are interested in hearing more then please do subscribe to our channel and follow us on our social media platforms just a reminder our facebook page is called on the frontline nhs ahps and our instagram is on the frontline ahps if you're interested in hearing more about what lindsay and bruno are up to you can also follow them on social media we'll put all of our social media handles including theirs in the bio for this episode see you next time